Welcome back to our final week in the book of Ruth for PVN students. Uh, we have got, as my dad would say, a humdinger of a sermon waiting for you. Uh, I'm pretty excited for it. We're in Ruth chapter 4, verses 7 through the end. Now, we'll kind of hop around a little bit. For the most part, though, we'll be in Ruth chapter 4, verses 7 through the end of the book. Um, just a quick summary. And again, you know, these summaries are helpful, I think, but the thing that is most helpful is just going back and listening through uh, the podcast series of the entire book of Ruth. That'll give you kind of the best picture verse by verse of what's been happening. Um, but, but we will do a little bit of a summary. So last week in the story of Ruth, we had reached kind of a dramatic turn. Um, Boaz, who Ruth and Naomi had hoped would be their kinsman redeemer all the way back since the end of chapter two, he reveals to Ruth that there is a kinsman closer in relation to Naomi than he is, <gasps> right? This mystery man has more of a right to be a kinsman redeemer because he's closer in relation. So Boaz goes to talk with him and see if he even wants to. And if he doesn't want to, or if he is not even thrilled to do it, then Boaz himself will redeem instead. So Boaz goes and speaks to this man in the beginning of chapter four, and this man is never named in the entire story, which is interesting because he has a pretty important role to play if he decides to do this. Um, his name is never mentioned. In fact, in Hebrew, he is actually called so-and-so. Why is this? Well, this chapter, like we discussed last week, chapter four of Ruth, is all about preserving names, preserving Naomi's family line, giving a new husband to Ruth. In fact, chapter four ends with what? A genealogy, a list of names. And this guy refuses to take part in any of it. Ruth four verse five tells us why this guy refuses to take part. Ruth four verse five, then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the land of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. Boaz reminds the man, again, we talked about this last week, but Boaz reminds the man, this is not just a real estate deal for you to close where you get everything. This is actually an act of sacrifice and service to protect Ruth and Naomi. You are giving Ruth a son who will take the name of Ruth's former husband and keep the land in his family as his inheritance. It's not really yours. It's about restoring this line that's passed away, not padding your own line. And the man backs out. He will not help them. And it, he, he will not help them if it costs him. He wants to protect his legacy, right? In verse six, he says, the closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have the right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. I would jeopardize my own inheritance. How ironic is that, that he's trying to save his own legacy, but in selfishly trying to protect his legacy, he loses it. He's trying to protect his name, and his name is never mentioned. Jesus Christ says in Mark eight thirty five, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must do what? Deny themselves. Not desperately try to save up for themselves, 
but must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Life consists of moments and days and seasons where we will be asked to put ourselves out there. We will sacrifice our reputation. We will sacrifice our comfort. But sometimes people are so desperate to preserve their reputation that they will do anything to fit in or save face. So they spend their whole lives worried to death about what everyone else thinks. What will the other parents say? What will the other moms say? What will the other dads think? What will the other players on the team think? What will the other people at my school think? We spend our whole lives trying to save face, thinking about what everyone else thinks, but we spend so much time worrying about other people's opinions that we never actually get the peace we're seeking. See the irony in this. They think if they get everyone's approval, then they'll be able to finally relax. But they spend so much time working to get everyone's approval that they can't relax. So you spend all this time trying to get this peace through earning everyone's approval, but through trying to earn everyone's approval, you never can actually relax and get peace. It's a lie. The only way to be at peace about what people think is to trust God's word and follow it. When you do that, your heart has a peace that other people's approval just can't give you. You're finally getting the peace you've been looking for all along, and it didn't come through earning everyone's approval. It actually came through sacrificing your reputation. Another example, you spend your whole life trying to be as comfortable as possible because you think that will bring you peace. But in your desperate search for comfort, it actually makes you miserable. Because now, since your whole life is about comfort, even the slightest threat to your comfort sends you over the edge. You're a nervous wreck. Your pursuit of constant comfort means you avoid every single confrontation that you can. It makes you fragile. Because now, since your whole life is about comfort, even the slightest threat to comfort sends you over the edge. But when we sacrifice our comfort, it deepens us. When we sacrifice our comfort, it deepens us. It puts miles on our soul. It makes us wise and stronger than we were before. And before you know it, little worries don't bother your deep soul at all, when in fact they used to. By sacrificing your comfort, you've actually become more comfortable, not less. Pursuing comfort just makes you more uncomfortable. Trying to get everyone to like you actually makes you more insecure. It's a self-defeating cycle. The only real way to live is to live outward-focused, to be willing to sacrifice comfort and reputation for something greater. And this is where we need God's grace. Pray for that. Pray that God would make you willing to give up comfort, that he would burn your heart with passion for him so deeply that you don't care about your reputation anymore. You can't help but sacrifice your reputation so that you can say what needs to be said. And when you do this, you'll find that you become more comfortable. You'll find that you don't worry about your reputation as much. 
So you're more at peace because you're not as worried about reputation anymore because you've sacrificed it. So now you can relax because there's nothing to there's nothing to protect. You get more peace. Because if you don't do this, it will hurt you in the long run. This man selfishly tried to keep his reputation and his comfort, and he loses both. Do what God asks you to do. C.S. Lewis says, look for yourself, meaning look out for yourself. Look out for yourself, only for your needs, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, and despair. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. C.S. Lewis is saying, if you're just trying to keep your comfort level at 100, if you're just trying to keep your reputation level at 100, you're going to wear yourself out. You're just looking out for yourself. You're going to burn yourself out. You're going to burn bridges. You're going to fold. You're going to compromise on things to just protect yourself. You're going to get angry at people when they are just trying to help you, but they're threatening your comfort and your reputation. You're burning bridges left and right. It's going to lead you to insecurity and despair. But if you look for, if you try to do what Jesus tells you to do, if you try to say what Jesus wants you to say, sacrificing your reputation, sacrificing your comfort, you will find comfort in earning Jesus' approval. Sacrificing your worldly reputation will actually make you more secure about your reputation. It'll make you more comfortable in who you are. You'll have a deeper peace, right? The peace that, goes, that surpasses understanding. That only comes through following Jesus and his word. So if you follow Jesus, instead of looking for peace, you'll find peace. You'll find all these things that you seek when you stop seeking them and run after Christ. So the man won't do it. The kinsman redeemer gives the land and thereby Ruth to Naomi's care and to Boaz. Look at this interesting exchange of property rights in 4, 7 through 10. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and an exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought, the, that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilion and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth, the Moabites, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are all witnesses today. So they do this thing where the, the nameless redeemer, well, so-called redeemer, great job, man. He takes off his shoe because he won't do it. He gives the shoe to Boaz, which is which is a symbolic, I can't literally pick up all the land and give it to you. Remember, there was no checking account. You couldn't, there was no wiring money or anything like that. Get, taking off the sandal and giving it to him was a symbolic gesture in front of elders, in front of witnesses. This was a legitimate legal proceeding. And this verifies it. This verifies what has happened in the community. Okay? So a traditional legal sign to verify what has happened. It is binding. Um, and then remember, Boaz directly says in 10, especially in verse 10, that the whole reason he's doing this is to redeem the line of Ruth's husband who has died to bring his name back to life. 
the son that Ruth and Naomi, excuse me, that, that Ruth and Boaz will have, right, is going to take up the name of Ruth's deceased husband, bring it back to life, redeem it. He is a kinsman redeemer. So that way the property stays in the family and this descendant can take care of Naomi when she gets old, et cetera, et cetera, right? And the witnesses, the elders of the town, don't just approve legally, they respond with a blessing, 11 and 12. All the people who are in the court and all the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home, that's Ruth, like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel, and may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah, in Ephrathah, there we go, and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. Notice, first of all, the first thing they talk about is Ruth having children, right? She becomes his wife. Um, may she be May your home be one like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. This, they know this is what's happening, right? This is not an American Netflix romance drama, right? Boaz is trying to redeem the family line. It, it can definitely be fair to say that he's attracted to Ruth's character, right? He knows that she would be a good wife, and Ruth thinks the same thing of Boaz, right? But this isn't some teen dating whatever, right? They're trying to redeem this family line. Boaz is trying to redeem the family line through children. The elders see this. That's the first thing they say. Where it says build the house, it means to have children, build the house of Israel, to have children. But they compare Ruth to Rachel and Leah. We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who built the house of Israel. They were the two women, long story, but they were basically the two women by whom Jacob had 12 sons the 12 tribes of Israel. Ruth, a Gentile, a foreigner by race and religion, is being compared to the mother of Israel, the mothers of Israel. Now, it's likely that this was a traditional blessing on an Israelite couple, right? I mean, you'd want that blessing for, for every Israelite couple. But it goes to show that Ruth, the Gentile, is being formally accepted into the people of Israel here. Her race is not the determining factor. She is now welcome as a part of Israel. They also pray that Boaz's name would be famous and that his house would be like that of Perez. Perez is the son of Judah and Tamar. This is the earliest story we have. Remember, Boaz is this kinsman redeemer, someone who's related to Ruth and Naomi, who can come in and fulfill the role of the deceased husband. Genesis 38, Judah and Tamar is the earliest story that we have of a kinsman redeemer. The, story of Ta the stories of Tamar and Ruth are very different, okay? Very different. But both of them involve a kinsman redeemer. Perez's family is very important in the tribe of Judah. So they're praying that Boaz's family will be like that of Perez, that it will be very important even long after Boaz is gone. Even long after Boaz is gone. And they have no idea how right they would be. In verse 13, we see that the Lord enables Ruth to conceive and have a child. This is only the second time, in verse 13, this is only the second time in the story that the Lord directly does something. Now, he's been at work behind the scenes the whole time. But the only two times in the story that God is explicitly mentioned 
as doing something, as in chapter 1, when the Lord brings food to the land and ends the famine, and here in chapter 4, when God brings Ruth a child. So he brings food at the end of chapter 1 to a barren land, and he brings a child at the end of chapter 4 to a barren woman. Both of God's actions are tied to redeeming and giving. The same God who brought Naomi back empty is now filling her life with blessing. Then we get into 14 and 15. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. At the end of chapter one, Naomi says that the Lord has left her empty. This same Lord is now filling her life with more blessing than she can take in. The women of the town say that they hope this child is famous in all of Israel, not just Bethlehem, not just Judah, but in all of Israel, kind of similar to what the, the, the elders said to Boaz. It seems like they're not just speaking here, they're, they're, they're almost prophesying as if the Holy Spirit is now involved in the birth of this child, like he has been this whole time. Naomi will be taken care of in her old age by this young man. She will be provided for. She no longer has to be insecure about the future. And think about it. God provided Naomi with a grandson so that she would no longer have to be insecure about the future. With us, God provided his son so that we can look to him and we don't have to be insecure about the future. This last part of the verse they say, we hope and know that he will take care of you because look at how much his mother, your daughter-in-law, has taken care of you. 15, may he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer in your old age because your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. We know this child will take care of you because look at the righteous servant, mother and father that he comes from. Ruth has taken better care of you, Naomi, than seven sons could have. Seven is a number in scripture of perfection and wholeness. They're saying Ruth has been better for you than the perfect son. Think back again to Ruth chapter one. Naomi says, the Lord has left me empty, but she was with Ruth. The Lord has actually given her more than she could have possibly asked for. Her first two sons were very deeply sinful. And so she gives, and so the Lord gives Naomi Ruth, who's better than, than even the perfect son could have been. You know, throughout the entire book of Ruth, I keep thinking back to this, this, um, this text that you'll know in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. It says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So much of your life is going to work out in a way that you did not plan, that you couldn't have planned even if you were able to. Why on earth would God send the king of the universe down as a helpless baby? That, that's not the way that I would have done it. 
But now that I see God's whole plan in the Bible, I'm so glad he does things his way. And that'll be what you say about your life so often. When things in life are not going, are not going as you planned them, when days stretch into weeks and you think, what is going on? Why are things happening this way? Remember Ruth and Naomi. Remember that God not only keeps his promise to us in the mess, but that the mess is actually part of God keeping his promise. My ways are higher than your ways. It's not just that, oh, there's this mess, but even though there's this mess, I know God's keeping his promise. No, the mess is part of God keeping his promise to us. My ways are higher than your ways. His covenant love that he has for you that was shown on the cross can never be broken. Just like this, the, the, the love between Boaz and Ruth and how they are working together here symbolizes the covenant love that God had for Israel, even in the darkest times of the judges that was never broken. And when things are difficult, if we lean into that, Instead of running from the cross in dark times, if we lean into it, grip the cross and trust God, you will go deeper into his love. Your trust in him will grow. Your love for him will grow. God keeps his promises. We can believe that every day of our lives. Ruth worked for Boaz for roughly like seven weeks. Every day, God was working his promise on his time, keeping Ruth and Naomi safe until the time was right. Ruth 1 verse 1 says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. Those two statements, I think, are related. Remember, famine was a sign that God would give Israel when they were wandering away from him. It was a punishment to get their attention. And the time, this is during the time of Judges, and it was a terrible time. The book of Judges is just a giant spiral down. Each judge's story gets longer and longer because the sin in their lives gets bigger and more convoluted. So, of course, there was a famine during the time of judges. Of course, God was punishing Israel during the time of the judges. And the book of Judges has a phrase in it. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, for there was no king in Israel. There was no leader who was good. There was no truth. There was only chaos. What a reminder for our times. Judges is the ultimate example of a you-do-you culture, and it is a disaster. Israel desperately needed a good king. And how does Ruth end? 16 and 17 of, verse, of chapter 4. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Ruth is ultimately about the birth of God's chosen king, David. David would help right the wrongs, not only of the judges, but of the evil and insane King Saul. My ways are higher than your ways, right? God has been working throughout the whole story of Ruth on a level that Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz had no idea about. Not just to bring the salvation of Naomi and Ruth through a kinsman redeemer, but to bring the salvation of his people through a king. This was something Ruth and Naomi had no clue was going on. One of the main themes of Ruth is to show that even in the darkest days of the judges, God was working at all times 
to preserve the line of his people. During the darkness of Judges, God never took his hand off the church. This does not mean he withholds suffering. This does not mean he withholds sadness. But it does mean that in suffering, in sadness, we are never out of his hand. No matter how turbulent our life becomes, God's grip on our lives never falters in the slightest. Lastly, 18 through 22. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nishan, and to Nishan, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. This list of families is called a genealogy. Notice it starts with Perez, the son of Judah and Tamar, the other kinsman redeemer episode. And it continues forward. This line wouldn't have been possible without kinsmen redeemers, without God's good plan. Typically, the point of a genealogy in the Old Testament is to show the credentials of the last person listed. In this case, it is to show the credentials of the last person listed, King David. David comes from the line of Boaz, who was kind to a foreigner, who gave himself to protect a widow, Naomi, and someone of another race, Ruth, at great cost to himself. This is David's great, excuse me, this is David's grandfather. Excuse me, his great-grandfather. Notice in the genealogy, it doesn't give us Ruth's first husband's name, but that was part of the point. They're supposed to, it's not about Boaz's name. It's about the other husband that Boaz was refilling the line. So why is Boaz listed here instead? It is to remind the reader and us that King David comes from a righteous line. He comes from Boaz and Ruth and their good deeds. But if only the author of Ruth or even Ruth herself could have seen that one greater than both her and David would come. For their line, from their line, God would choose to bring someone who would not just save the world from the dark times of the judges, but that Jesus Christ would save us from the darkness of sin itself. Let's pray.